my name is Eric, and I welcome you to our Black Gay Diaspora podcast, where we, as LGBTQ plus citizens, come together to inspire and educate each other on who we are and our respective countries and professions. Through topics and guest interviews, our Black Gay Diaspora podcast celebrates individuals making a difference. Loving who we love is not a choice. Being who we're meant to be can be. We are here. You are welcome. We are community. Hello and welcome to our Black Gay Diaspora podcast. I am your host, Eric, and today I am joined once more by Gamal G. Tarawa, who is a facilitator, public speaker, and founder of Purple Frog Connections. He is also the BAFTA-winning protagonist in the 2022 BAFTA-winning docudrama called The Black Cop. And G is back to interview me, so I will hand the reins over to him. Hello, Eric. Hello. <laughs> Handing the reins over to me. Wow. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. BAFTA winning facilitator. Still has a nice ring to it. I still haven't got used to it. Thank you. But that's not about me today. You've just come back from an amazing trip. And I thought it would be a good idea to sort of like mark that and just explore how it came about and some of the experiences you had and just where you are, you know, put a marker in the ground and capture some of what that meant to you. You were in? I was in Cape Town, South Africa. I was there for three months from June until September, which was their winter since they're south of the equator. For me, it's mind-blowing. Tell me how this came about. How did you end up going to South Africa? (laughs) The short answer somewhat is that I didn't want to come back to the U.S. I wasn't ready. I was in Sweden for three months. And before that, I was in the U.K., mostly in Brighton for almost six months. And I had just stumbled onto an article where digital nomads like to go. It was like the top 10 places that digital nomads like to go. And Cape Town was listed. And it was just timing that I had met a woman, Alicia, who is from Cape Town, South Africa, but she lives in Sweden. She actually came about through this platform. She's a listener and had reached out to me actually when I was in the UK and shared how she liked the podcast as a straight woman who's married a mom, but that she was getting a lot out of it as a person of color. I took them as signs that, oh, okay, maybe it's Cape Town. You took them as signs. I like that. I was just about to say, did you feel that? But you you took the words out of my mouth. So tell me about the preparation. How did that go? This is the other side of the world for crying out loud. (laughs) (laughs) I think because of Alicia, you know, I did reach out to her and share with her that I was planning to go there. And I just got some of her suggestions. I sent her a list of places that I was going to rent. That was my main thing was just where to go or where to stay. So once I got that part out, I just booked my flight and then it was relatively easy. You didn't have any concerns. You just felt, I'm going. Maybe some of it is connected to this journey I've been on for four years of being nomadic. But I think more than anything, it was just that I did have the gift of having somebody who is from there. But she doesn't live there. She doesn't live there, no. But, you know, of course, because she's from there, she has family there. and Ultimately, you're going there blind. Yeah. Mm. It's not like going to Berlin or or to Paris, you're going way down to the other side of the world, literally straight down. How long is the flight from Sweden? 
I started my flight from Sweden to Finland, and then from Finland to the UK Heathrow Airport. And then the major part of the flight was 11 hours going from the UK to South Africa. Which is a long time to be flying. And then you were fortunate enough that, if I remember correctly, when you arrived at the airport, the person from who you rented the Airbnb was waiting for you? Yeah, he offered on Airbnb, which I'd never experienced that before. He offered to pick the guests up from the airport for a fee. In a lot of ways, that gave me peace of mind. And when I met him, the energy felt right. Is it worthy mentioning his name? His name is Jean-Luc. So when you arrive there, you've picked up your bags and everything like that. You're in the car and you're being taken to your accommodation. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you're in the car looking around. And yeah. the reason why I ask is the link for me is I remember when I first arrived in Lagos in Nigeria. Admittedly, I was only 16 at the time. But I still have vivid memories of driving from the airport to my uncle's house in the car. The sights and sounds and smells, what I was feeling. So I'm just wondering what was going on for you. Maybe to your earlier question of like concerns or anything, I think because of the pictures I'd seen of the accommodations and even what I found online of Cape Town itself, it didn't look that foreign air quotes to me. So I wasn't really thinking much about that part of it. Other than I will say I did see, I guess it was, um, I don't know, if I, I guess it's a township that was near the airport. These types of places that are very prominent on the news, I did notice that. And that was, I think the first time I had seen that in person. Mm. And what did that, what did that do to you? We were on the highway, so it was, it was passing by. We didn't go through it. So you were very much an observer at that stage? Oh, yeah, for sure, yeah. And then you arrive at the accommodation. Was there anything about, I'm in Africa? Ooh, maybe because of the flight. (laughs) I was still numb in some ways. But what I noticed within the first couple weeks, as far as to that question of being in Africa, was the people. Visually, it was the first time I was in a majority Black country or Black population country where I noticed for the first time a similar look amongst Black people, similar to me being in Sweden or different parts of Europe where these different countries, people who are ethnically Swedish or Italian or Spanish, generally speaking, they have a look that identifies them as being from that ethnic background. And I was in South Africa, and that was the first time I saw that with Black people. And when people ask me back home in the U.S. about, like, to your question, do I feel like I'm in Africa? That was what I noticed first and foremost. I think it may be similar in the U.K. If you put two random Black people together, you wouldn't really identify a lot of similarities between them as far as eye shape or nose or those types of markers that truly identify, say, if they're from Nigeria or from Ghana or from other countries in Africa. So I I noticed that right away, and that was very fascinating to me. Mm. When you're talking, I'm thinking of Black Americans that I know who have been, that we know in the media. Richard Pryor, when he went to Africa, he went to Ethiopia. He spoke about his experience. 
and and I hope you don't mind the language, but I'm going to use Richard Pryor's language. Okay. <laughs> I know it. <laughs> you know the phrase I'm going to use. Not the phrase, but I know. Oh yeah, you know what really, uh, he said. He said he said he was driving around, and he said there was this voice in the back of his head. Mm-hmm. I said, "Can you see that?" And he was like, "See what?" He goes, "There's no niggers here. There's just people." Mm-hmm. And he said, "That hit him." And I think I heard Dave Chappelle, and you know, he said almost similar things. The thing for me is a black American going to Africa. Mm-hmm. Right, with all the history you have from Black America, you're now going to this continent where your ancestry or some part of your ancestry has come from that that land. Did that hit you in any way? I think for me, because I knew my lineage didn't come through South Africa. I I get what they mean. And actually, I, I was asked that question by family and friends here. Maybe prior to... I don't know how many years ago, I may have thought that if I landed in a country in Africa, that I would immediately feel a connection. Mm. But what I was aware of was that although I, of course, be identified by non-Black people as Black, what I noticed is that people that I saw that were South African, something in their energy let me know that they knew I wasn't from there. Mm. And that's not a bad thing, but it was it was an interesting thing to notice. Again, the beauty of, of knowing different cultures, specifically with the continent of Africa, of knowing that we are so diverse and, and unique within the different countries. And so for me as a Black person, as a Black American, to be aware of that, like, I'm in a lot of ways, well, I am a foreigner in this country too. And it's a quite a beautiful thing for me to be aware of because it lets me know that they can see the difference or feel the difference maybe in energies and and possibly in how one looks. Hmm. That's a very insightful view. But that's an interesting thing, though. You're a foreigner on a continent that your ancestry has come from. Have you gone home? Are you so far removed from it that it's not home? I think for me, I, if I had gone to West Africa, to Nigeria, to Ghana, to those countries, I know I would have really been hyper vigilant on trying to say, how do I feel? Who can I see that I can maybe see myself in? I definitely would have been zeroed in on that in that part of Africa. Mm, okay. So, yeah. So you've arrived, you've unpacked, you've had your first night's sleep. And your next chore is to go grocery shopping <laughs> to fill the fridge. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what was that like? You know, uh, that's one of the most exciting things about traveling, especially internationally, is going shopping for food because every country does it a little bit differently. These little things that seem like they would be universal and they're different depending on what country you're in. To that point of how things are done a little differently, I took my produce up to the register and was told, oh, you didn't weigh it to put the price on it. And I was like, oh, I wasn't aware I was supposed to do that. And there was a woman behind me saying, oh, I'll hold your spot while you do that. I'm like, oh, thank you, because I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, yeah. So people are friendly generally, yeah. I would say, yeah, yeah, that type of thing, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But then I'm not surprised because you have that kind of demeanor about you anyway. So I can see I can see how how people would respond to you in that way. Uh, what were the first couple of weeks like for you? 
I was really committed to just dropping into this new country, this new city, and keeping the train moving. And then a couple of weeks into it, I realized that I needed to slow down and acknowledge that I'm in a different country, I'm in a different city, and to feel that. I wasn't allowing myself to feel that. And so as a result, I was maybe stressing myself out. What I needed to do was just stop and rest. <laughs> I wasn't doing that. I also remember that for, I think it was for the first week or so, you didn't actually go out. No, I didn't. Not really. Not at night, no. And I remember sort of like you having a conversation where uh, Jean-Luc came round and said something to you. The gift of social media, the internet, is that we do have all this information at our disposal. The downside of that is you really have to filter through what is reality and what is propaganda. I really was in my head about like, oh, because you know, people are like, oh, is Africa safe? Are you taking care of yourself? Even though I had been out and about and you know, I felt fine. But there was a part of that that filtered into my psyche and I was really in my head a lot about it. And so, yeah, Jean-Luc, this was maybe a few weeks into me being there. He gave me a great day tour of not Cape Town, but we went outside of the city and did the coast and, and went to Cape Point. But yeah, I just really got plugged into the bullshit, just to put it plainly, and had to realize that, you know, I lived here in LA for, in Los Angeles for 27 years. And the same stuff that was said there was said when I moved here from from Arizona, like, oh my God, you're going to get carjacked. There's gangs everywhere. And it's like, every major city has its stuff. And it's like, you just, mm. you just make sure you pay attention to your surroundings. I do believe some of that is connected to because it's a majority Black country and all the BS around that. Yeah. We're not immune to some of that stuff, are we? No. Even though I'm Black and I know how it feels to be seen out and about and you can catch an energy or catch a look from someone that they let you know who they think they see. You see, that's interesting because I just had the phrase come into my head is that you're a Black Westerner in a Black African country. So part of you was Black, but your mindset was in a different place. And that was an interesting way of sort of like, yeah, working through that. So Jean-Luc took you out on this car drive for the day. And I, I I, remember having the conversation with you when you came back. You seemed very animated. That's when I felt like I was in a different country. I didn't feel it in, South, in Cape Town. You know, it's modeled after a lot of European cities. We went through these beach towns. He showed me different parts, different areas where Black populations or colored populations lived. Yeah, that's when I felt like I, I was in a different country. And it was so beautiful. It was so beautiful. Not the landscape only, but just seeing different populations of this country and how they were living. You use the term colored there, just in case anybody's not aware, right? Could you just explain the, how, what the context of the term colored in a South Africa context? <laughs> From what I know of it, and even some of the feedback I got about who I am there, it's basically, at its core, people who are mixed of African and European. 
It's interesting to clarify that because sometimes people hear the word and they won't know and understand the context. Part of me intentionally doesn't look up too much of it because I will say, as a Black person, as a Black American, I should say, Black Westerner, I like that you said that because I love history, I know beneath the surface what else could be there. Mm. And, you know, I've done genealogy and all that stuff. I see myself as, as a Black man. And being in a country like South Africa that divided it in a way that was different than the U.S. Here we had the one drop rule. Yeah, that was uncomfortable for me when I had people say who I would be described as. I I was like, oof. (laughs) I had in my mind who I saw that, but it wasn't me. Say more about that. It's uncomfortable for me because at the end of the day, those of us who are what the term is, people of color, we still suffer. To break it down, we're just dividing and conquering ourselves, in my opinion, or taking on the tools of the oppressor. <laughs> Sorry, that's an interesting but a nice little segue, because you're in a country that probably had some of the most brutal oppression of Black people in history. The apartheid regime and stuff like that. I mean, did any of that come up for you? Or I was interested in it, especially being from the U.S., what I discovered and didn't know really is the time that the, I think the Dutch first came to South Africa was around the time that the Europeans were coming to North America, just realizing there were a lot of similarities with how these powers or these these invasions happened in South Africa were not too dissimilar to what happened here in North America and in the Caribbean. You know, I definitely was, was interested in that history but at the same time, trying to navigate how to ask about it in a respectful way to the Black South Africans there, because I didn't want to lead with saying, oh, I want to know about your pain. But you did have some of those conversations. I did, yes. Yeah. And they were receptive. They were receptive, yeah. But I again, I, I would let them lead. And then I had one person in particular say, we want to share more of our joys with you. Mm. Yeah, because that was what was done to us. That is not about us. Yeah, that's a very powerful. Yeah, yeah. And then I, I remember there was a trip, a day trip you had with someone who took you around. Yeah, uh, Peter. Yeah, so I, I'll shout him out. It was similar to Jean Luc. I, I didn't expect it to impact me in the way how, that. So it how did. did you meet Peter? I met him through a, a mutual connection connected specifically with being Black and gay. (laughs) And to go back to when you said I was reticent about kind of roaming around the city, I didn't fully realize I was in the heart of all of the major museums, historic parks. (laughs) Talk about blinders on. (laughs) Not blind, unaware. Unaware, because he's like, oh, I'll meet you at this park. And so we met, and then I was looking on Google. I'm like, oh, I'm walking. It says I'm like five minutes away. Then I'm like, oh, it was just down the street. (laughs) He knew so much history because of his educational background. He had a lot of history, and I think his interest in history, too. He had a lot of history about the country, about the original inhabitants, and then those who came later. Mm. And then, you know, there were statues of Queen Victoria. And and I'll say this because, you know, there's this, this push now in the U.S. to 
say we shouldn't teach certain history because why should we focus on the pain? But that's where a lot of the answers are, in my opinion. And we do teach history. We teach it through media. We teach it through historical dramas. I just think these people that don't want us to talk about it because they don't want to look at how that history influences how they still view the world. Mm. And I bring that up because when Peter really shared the histories of these colonial powers that came through and how they were celebrated and heralded, even though I think I know a lot, I didn't know as much as I found out that day. Mm. Growing up here in the UK, South Africa was very much part of our part of our awareness growing up, you know, things like Steve Biko and Nelson Mandela's imprisonment and stuff like that. We were very aware of it. We had South Africa House in Trafalgar Square in London, which was the South African embassy, where there was a permanent protest outside of it. We did collections for the ANC. So when you were going, part of my excitement was going with you. I think on that same day, you went to the place where there was a statue of Mandela. Mm, yeah. Yeah. With seeing the statue of Mandela, yeah, that was that was amazing. And that was part of the tour. And when we arrived there and I saw the statue and we were just going to take pictures outside of it. And there was a, a security guy who was like, oh, if you guys want, you can just come up because it was closed off that day. You could come up and actually stand there. Then that's when Peter explained to me that this is where he gave a speech. Across the way, there was like a big, you know, the American Territory parking lot. That's how I would have described it. But that's where he gave his, his speech. His first and, speech when he was really Yeah. And that was powerful for me, I will say. And then standing next to the statue, he was a very tall man. And I think you pointed it out but with the glasses and something he was holding in his hand. Yeah, yeah. That was another bonus of the trip that I thank Peter for. Yeah, because the glasses weren't his glasses. He had forgotten his glasses. They were his wife's glasses. Yeah. And that's where he did the uh, Marianne Williamson quote, our greatest fear. Our greatest fear is not that we are inadequate, but we are powerful beyond measure. It has our light, not our darkness that frightens us. Or something like that. We ask ourselves, who am I to be fabulous, talented, and gorgeous? Who are you not to be? You are a child of the earth. Well, there is nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. As you let your light shine, you allow other people to do the same. As you are liberated from your fear, your presence will liberate others. To me, that's almost like Martin Luther King standing on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, doing an I Have a Dream speech. To me, it has that equal standing. So thank you for taking me there with you. Apart from the people, what was really impacting on you? Observations that I, I noticed is that this is a majority Black country, but that you can tell that most of the wealth and the power does not lie in their hands. Like me renting that apartment, because I was in two apartments, uh, that first six weeks I was in that one apartment, what was included in that was maid service once a week. My reference point with connecting with Black people in the West is we acknowledge each other, you know, hey, how are you? I would speak to her and I wasn't sure if it was shyness. I still don't know. This is all perception, but there wasn't really an engagement. But me realizing over time that 
maybe there was a guilt on my end because I could afford to rent in the space. And I have this, this black woman who's cleaning it once a week. And yeah, there was a guilt on my end. And then at, at the last time I tried to engage with her, I, I sensed that I was trying too hard. And I, and I sensed that kind of in how she was like, you know, I'm just here to clean. <laughs> I don't know why you keep wanting to talk to me. <laughs> <laughs> Let me do my job. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, wow. But it's also that, that thing that you said, I'm a black American or whatever, and I'm here and I'm renting this apartment. There was a bit of an economic difference in what you said there. Did you see an economic difference between you and the local population? The blacks, yeah. Most of the ones I was around, yeah. That's why I wanted to clarify the ones you were around, because I'm sure there are rich black South Africans there as well. Those first six weeks, I was in city center, and that's where I, I would say I saw most of the black people. I didn't get the sense they were living in the area. When I moved to Greenpoint, which is closer to the waterfront, that's when I started to see more, you know, white people in <laughs> mm. larger concentrations. Those first few weeks, I didn't see them unless they were in the building or in the car. I definitely didn't see them on the sidewalk. That was another thing I noticed uh, in being in city center was I didn't see, for the most part, unless they were tourists, I didn't see the general population of white people walking around. And maybe to tie it into that thing about safety, I wonder if that was part of it and not because it couldn't be safe, but because that's part of the, the belief. There was a trip you made to the barbers. I remember having that conversation with you. How was that? Oh, God, thank you for that. Yeah, it was hard to overlook that there was a huge difference economically in that area and where I was staying. Definitely, just based on my observations, I would say that there was not a lot of wealth in that area. Did you feel safe in that area? Well, that's a layered question, isn't it? Not the question, but... I don't know how much of it was reality and how much of it was perceptions. I definitely looked around more when I was in that area. It stays with us, some of that stuff, doesn't it? Huh. There was a strike that took place. These minibuses, from what I know, most of the black population, that's how they get into the city from outside of, I guess, the proper city of Cape Town is these, these white minibuses. Uh, Trevor Noah in his book talks about it. And I also saw it when I went to visit in Johannesburg. But yeah, they had a strike and I think it lasted maybe two, three weeks. I remember talking to you, it was on a Sunday and I had walked to the waterfront where the big shopping area and it's like all these restaurants. And I remember being aware for the first time, like, oh, I see a lot of white people, but where are the black people? And then a day or two later, I found out there was the strike. They couldn't get in for work, and then that affected people were working double shifts to cover for people that couldn't get into the city during that time. I remember going to the market, and a lot of stuff was not stocked on the shelves. And for me, that was like, well, maybe we can have a conversation as to why this is only affecting them, and what can we do to, to balance it out more? When you say we could have a conversation, as in? The, the citizens of South Africa. Right. Yeah. I do remember overhearing these white people. 
basically saying this is affecting us because we can't get our creature comforts. It goes back to that um, that sense of no matter where you are, there is still that injustice or imbalance of power sometimes. Tell me about load shedding. <laughs> load shedding. Yeah, that's uh, the scheduled blackouts. I don't think it just happens in South Africa, but that's what they call it there, load shedding. You can find out about it. The schedule is online. It tells you what areas, when it will happen, how many times in the day that it will happen. That was maybe part of, too, in the beginning, why I was uh, apprehensive about going out at night in particular, because I assumed that when these happened, that the whole city went dark. I found out that it doesn't really affect the businesses. Like I had joined a gym for a month, and part of the selling point was like, we're not affected by load shedding, so you can still run on your treadmills and mm. your saunas and all that. That's me adding to it. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, can you just explain the rationale behind load shedding and how it works from your perspective, the way you see it? From what I understand of it, it has to do with the infrastructure. Just things were not done maybe in the best way to deal with the electricity in the country. Yeah. And the typical load shedding session would last? My experience, at least in the city center, I don't know how it affected people in the townships, but in the city itself, for me, it was like two hours. My only time I didn't like it was between 6 p.m. and 10. I eat late, and the first place I rented, everything was electric. No, I'm sorry, everything was electric except for the gas, so I could use the gas stove to cook. And then you have this light that they provide for you, kind of like if you're going camping. When I moved to the second place, which I liked more because of the location, I was a little annoyed because the oven and the stove were electric too. So if I was on the phone, say, with you or someone else, then I remember like, oh, I haven't eaten yet and I'm going to have to wait an extra two hours to eat or to make eat it food because of load shedding. Did you say oven? Yeah, I know. I said that, huh? And you know me. So <laughs> I don't turn an oven on if I don't have to. <laughs> I was going to say, you don't use Oh, you caught that. <laughs> Whipping and, and shredding and grating. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ask me what those mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> mm. And then you made a trip to Robin Island. What's the significance of Robin Island? The history goes back a few centuries. That was where a lot of prisoners were sent. I think it's known best because of Nelson Mandela spent the first 18 years of his imprisonment there, the height of apartheid. A lot of Black people were sent there because of protesting this regime. Mm. It's a ride across the water, about half an hour, maybe a little bit more, to the island. There is information that is given to you along the way that was shared on that ride to the actual island about the history of it, about the traumas that people experienced before and during their time there. Yeah. And then you went to his cell, I take it. Yeah, that was part of it. The island, I didn't expect it to be as big as it is. My only reference point with that type of journey was, was Alcatraz Island, which was a prison island in San Francisco. 
So I thought it was something that you could walk about casually, but I don't think we saw a third of the actual island itself. It's huge. And the guards had their own part of town and and churches and schools where their children were born and raised. Mm. So that was an interesting thing to to find out about this place. It was his own community. Yeah, seeing where Mandela was and, and other prisoners and being told what they experienced and why some of them were there. One of the things that really, from an emotional standpoint, captured my attention was our last guide had, had actually been a prisoner there in the 1970s. And he was sent there as a, as a high school student protesting the conditions and was there for five years. Yeah. His teenage years up until his early adulthood, he was he was in prison for speaking out against apartheid. Seeing Mandela's cell, knowing the history of South Africa in connection to apartheid, connection to all the things that the original inhabitants and their descendants experienced, and seeing the conditions that they were put through, I'm glad that I got to learn more about that and. Most of the people on that trip were not Black. And so I was looking around and seeing how they were experiencing it. And there were times I was taken out of the moment. Like I remember walking by, there was a Canadian group there. My daughter went here and after this, we're going to go see some art gallery. And and I was like, so how are you processing this? (laughs) The tourist is on a bus on the island. So we got off the bus for like a restroom break and to get something to eat. And coming back on, like our guide who had a great sense of humor, and she's like, the last person on the bus has to sing when we get back on. And so just so happened, this elderly couple got on and I don't know what language they were speaking, but she spoke to them in their language. And then so the husband started off the song and then the wife. So I zeroed in on them. And at the end of the tour, when we were walking back to the bus, I tried to strike up a conversation with them and I didn't really connect, but I think it was their daughter. I walked next to her and I said, is it okay if I ask you, what did you know about what was going on here during the height of this? And she shared some of her experiences and her awarenesses. And and she said, you know, it was kind of like you didn't want to let on what you knew because of fear. And for me, that's what I wanted to know. Like the people who, who of course, had to go to prison, but also the people who were living there during that time. I wanted to know how it was for them. Did you get that opportunity? I said, me, my frame of reference, I didn't know as much. I mean, part of it could have been too, I was I was very young. I wasn't an adult during the time, at least in the 80s. I got a lot out of it from an emotional standpoint for me talking to her. Mm. Yeah, Apartheid wasn't just in the 80s, though. No, I know that, but I'm just saying me, myself, I became aware of it in the 80s because of being a child. <laughs> so that that's just a, a really powerful moment. It's somewhere that is on my bucket list. So you've come back from the trip to Robin Island, and then you made another trip. To Johannesburg, yeah. Tell me about that, how that came about. Oh, I have to shout out Casey. He was a podcast guest. I interviewed him in the spring of this year of 2023. And most of my time in South Africa, he was actually not there. He was here in the U.S. on the East Coast. 
And so when he returned, we connected by phone and he was like, oh, you're still here. It'd be great if you could come visit Johannesburg. Or how do they call it there? Joburg. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, which I started to say, and then I was like, can I say that? <laughs> but yeah, that was, I would say, in the top three of my favorite moments of being in South Africa was going to Johannesburg. And I'm really, really glad I went because talking about power dynamics and, and things that I saw, at least in, during my time in Cape Town, going to Johannesburg for me was where I was like, oh, there are Black people here who are prosperous, who are prospering. That you can see, I should say, that you don't have to look for it. It was in my face. And I, and I saw that right away. And Casey picked me up from the airport and my Airbnb, I couldn't check in until I think two, three o'clock. And I was actually standing in the area that where he works and he's a singer. That's how I found out about him. But you know, his, his day job is he's, he's an accountant. So he took me to his job because they were uh, setting up for an event, an evening event. So when I saw that and when I saw this, this company and, and I was introduced to all these Black people who were successful or financially successful, and I needed to see that. I needed to see that for myself. And, and I'm glad that he introduced that to me. And but it felt like being in Atlanta, Georgia. You know, I'm from Phoenix, Arizona, which doesn't have a visibly large Black population, like places like Chicago or Atlanta. And so when I went to Johannesburg and, and I saw that, it just really warmed my heart. And um, how was that trip? Because you went to a few places on that. Yeah. So I was there for, I think, four days, four full days. And again, Casey was great. And we connected similar to our dynamic. We just instantly connected, you know, the car ride from the airport to his job and then him dropping me off at where I was staying. A good childhood friend of his uncle passed away. So he said, if you want to ride with me and my partner to the service. I know it's kind of an odd thing to ask, but it's about a five-hour drive, and I would be able to see different parts of of the country. And I mean, of course, going there to support somebody who's lost a loved one, but it was it was beautiful. It really was. And the ride over there, <laughs> I joked that it, it was confirmation. We had moments for me, my reality as a gay man, that we're born this way. That humor, this gay humor, in a lot of ways, is universal because there were some jokes that were made. Can you give some examples? Uh, I guess I can, yeah. Um, so, you know, his his boyfriend, we were driving, and then about two hours, I think, into the drive, we had to stop, or he had to stop for gas, and the gas attendants filled the gas up, you know, they check your car and everything, and I hope it's okay that I'm saying this, Casey. Um <laughs> His boyfriend noticed that he was, he noticed one of the attendants and that he was attractive. And, and then Casey shared about the last time that he went through there and there was another one. And then his boyfriend, as he was doing this, he was also filling you up. (laughs) (laughs) So I was in the backseat, like a little kid, like. Yeah. Oh, it was, it was great. And his boyfriend is an art curator and I uh, was sharing his career and, and, you know, his, his experience and his knowledge of art. And 
and contemporary African art and South African art. And it was, it was great. And again, we went to the service in this town that reminded me of places I'd seen in Mexico, even places I've seen in, in Arizona and Central California, these farm communities. I think it was Limpopo was the province. And it was, uh, I think, 100 or so kilometers south of Zimbabwe, the Zimbabwe border. But when we entered the province, and we had, I think, another half hour before we got to the town, for me, again, that thing of what the media puts out there about Africa, and, and it just it just annoys the fuck out of me, I'll say that, how much they don't show of, of these, these beautiful, rich communities. I think even for them, it was, it was eye-opening with them coming from the city. But what we noticed because we got on the road like two in the morning to get to the service, which started around at seven or eight in the morning. Sun is just coming up. And there were so many people out during their morning walks, exercising, jogging. I know for a fact that these are areas that the media doesn't show. They may not be making six figures or whatever, but they're these beautiful, thriving communities. And they have these lives that include getting up to exercise. I met his friend, Andrew. When we got there, it was already full. So we were outside and then afterwards went to the gravesite. And then afterwards, they had a big thing at someone's, a relative's house. And there was a loss there. But as I know, losing both my parents, that within the loss, there's also celebration of this person's life. And, and I saw that there, what people shared about his uncle and his sister. And I met his his mom and so many great people there who were so welcoming and so African hospitality. Yeah. 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 It's legendary. And then there was a moment cause I wanted pictures of us together. And so as we were leaving, Andrew Casey's friend, whose uncle passed, asked these two girls to take pictures and showed us, you know, the difference in generation. They're probably born with these smartphones. We just wanted a couple pictures and they had us there for probably 20 minutes. You know, wait, wait, we got this angle. We'll give this angle. We'll take this angle and stand here and pose here and do that. And so we were enjoying that as the adults. We felt like a boy band because they were crushing on uh, Casey's boyfriend. Oh, these girls were so cute. The way they were looking at him was just... I remember you sending me a picture of one of them, yeah. Yeah, and then uh, at some point they heard my accent and then they pulled uh, Andrew to the side and then... They said, oh, where are you from? You're American. And then they said, say something. And I spoke and they were like, oh, my God. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> I said, that's always a funny question. But they say, say something. And you're like, yeah, I'm like, oh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> they said, are you from Chicago? I was like, no, I'm from Arizona. Oh. I said, but I lived in California for a long time. Oh, you lived in California. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. That was your last trip, really, while you were there, wasn't it? Yeah, because I left, I think, the following week. Yeah. I left on the 6th of September, got to New York on the 7th. Have you had time to stop and think what you've got from that trip? I miss it. I'm really grateful that I went. I'm really grateful that I met the people that I met there. And that didn't hit me emotionally until probably a week into being back in the U.S. And I was remembering the apartment. I loved the, the second apartment in particular because 
it was my home for, for six weeks. And mm. depending on where I was walking, it was a 20, 25 minute, maybe half hour walk to the beach. I'm glad I went. Mm. This is saying that you can take a man out of Africa, but you can't take Africa out of the man. And I was in the country of South Africa, so most of the people that I met were from there. But I also met people from the Congo. I think it was a guy I met from Zimbabwe, Uber drivers. But they were so friendly. And I remember the guy from Congo was just playing this music. And I said, oh, who is this? He goes, oh, it's the music from my people. And and he was telling me these names. And then he was like, yeah, if you've heard South Africa music, it sounds completely different. And yeah, he was so accommodating in what he was sharing about his country and, 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 his, and the history. This is why I said we needed to do this. It sits there, but it needs to come out. It needs to be said. And you need to hear yourself saying it because it's beautiful. Thank you for suggesting it. Yeah. It's, it's a moment. Would you go back? Yes. I like the way you said that without hesitation. I met Chris and Jim. They're Americans, but I met them while I was there, a gay couple. And they're starting wine retreats in South Africa. And that was one of the highlights of the trip, too. We've been following each other, I think, since the beginning of this year when I was in Brighton in the UK. And then just by chance... I was on Instagram and I saw they were there and I got to spend time with them. I got to spend time with them on my last day and I thanked them for suggesting that I meet them on the last day. That was, it really solidified part of my heart will be in South Africa. Hmm. Yeah. We met for lunch and then um, took a walk on the beach and, and I felt like I connected more with them and they're on a similar journey as individuals who want to expand their horizons through travel and also starting these new careers. Is there anything about that trip when you look back on it in hindsight that you think I would have done that differently? Well, definitely would have gotten out sooner as far as roaming the city, walked in areas where if you go online, they're like, Oh, I don't know if you should go there. They're going to do this to foreigners. And it's like, Jean-Luc, you know, he's from France and he and his wife have lived there, I think, 24, 25 years. They've raised their children there. And he was like, you really have to filter through a lot of the, the propaganda that uh, revolves around people's perceptions of Africa. And that's a nice little way to end it. That's a nice quote to end it on. Thank you for spending time with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, comment and subscribe. Share with your friends, too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Our Black Gay Diaspora and on Twitter at BLK Gay Diaspora. Until next time.